This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Mike Jackness from ColorIt.com revealed how he uses Amazon as a proving grounds to build a $2.5 million business. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that used a PR agency to kickstart a two million pound business. In this episode, you'll learn what are the signals to look out for to determine if you are in a growing industry, how to use a PR agency to kickstart a marketing plan, and what you need to prepare before working with a PR agency. Today, I'm joined by Julian Hearn from Huel.com. That's H-U-E-L.com. Huel sells nutritionally complete powdered food, everything your body needs and nothing more. It was started in 2014 and based out of the UK. Welcome, Julian. Thank you very much, Felix. Very, very pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So tell us a little bit more about uh, Huling. You know, what, what, is it that, what is it exactly that you sell? It's a powdered food that contains, contains all the vitamins, the minerals, the protein, carbs, and fats all in a single product. Very cool. So how did you um, come up with this? Like, What was the you know, idea behind starting a business like this? Well, I'll have to give you a little bit of a background story. But basically, I, I ran a, a website in 2018, which, uh, sorry, 2000, <laughs> 2008, which um, I sold in 2011. So that previous business, that uh, was a voucher code website. And what happened was I, I sold that. Um, did very well from uh, the, the the money from the sale. So I took a little bit of time out. And in 2012, I started a company called Body Hack Limited. And that company was um, meant to be a sort of like a fitness comparison site. We were going to try different fitness programs and different um, uh, diets to see which ones worked and which ones didn't. So we were going to run various different people through these different programs to prove some works and some didn't. And you were then able to buy the program at the end of that to, sh- to the ones that work, clearly. So... Uh, I was one of the guinea pigs for the first one, and during that time, I did a three-month uh, program, and during that time, I dropped from 21% body fat down to 11% body fat, and I did no ex- more exercise than I did before. It was just basically what I what I was eating made all the difference, so I was weighing all of my food and got everything really spot on in terms of nutrition, and so a lot of my friends wanted to replicate that, wanted to do the same, and they uh, asked me how I did it, and I told them, and I said I was eating about five meals a day. I was cooking all the food myself from fresh. And uh, I was eating this type of food, mostly like animal protein, a lot of vegetables and a little bit of carbs. And uh, they basically said they couldn't do it. Um, and so I sort of understood it was very tricky if he was working full time to do this. And so that business didn't really get traction. You know, we ran that probably for about six months, didn't really get the traction I wanted. So I started looking around for other opportunities and just realized that the, the, the food was so eat, uh, important to what we eat in terms of our body composition. And my friends wanted a product. And I started thinking, well, I'm using whey protein. is extremely convenient. Um, it's very easy to weigh out exactly what you need and make perfect sense. But it was only just whey protein. It's just one dimension. So I started thinking, well, why can't we put the, the carbs in there, the protein, uh, the protein, the carbs, and the fats in there, and all the micronutrients into a single product? So that was the genesis of fuel. Cool. So you, the business that you sold, let's take a go back to the, the beginning that you mentioned. So 2008, 2011, you ran a business. Was it in a similar industry as uh, as Body Hack and, and now Huel? 
No, it was completely different. It was more, I suppose, in America, you'd call it a coupon code website. It was uh, a, an affiliate-type website where basically we, w- we would collect codes in from merchants and we would display those, those uh, discount codes, those coupon codes on our website. People would pick those up, go to a store and get a discount off a product. So I, I grew that company from scratch. I think it was about £1,500 initial investment. And in the final year, we were turning, sorry, not turning over, the profit was about two £2.5 million pounds. So I sold that and used that money to, well, for the rest of my life, I suppose I can virtually retire now if I wanted to. But I took a little bit of time out, but then I got itchy feet as a sort of entrepreneur. I wanted to go back in. And that's when I went back in and did Body Hack. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, definitely um, a super successful business already. And was it a hard decision to, to sell the business? Like what made you decide to move on from it? It wasn't really something I was super passionate about. It was something that clearly uh, was um, very profitable. It had a very small um, overhead. So from a business perspective, it was uh, you know, a really super simple business, really. Just a, as long as you could get traffic to that site, you could earn very good money. Um, so it was basically an SEO play. Um, but there was you know, a ton of competitors doing the same thing because of the, the advantages of the type of business. You know, the good news, I could run it from my house for the majority of the time. Then I eventually got a fairly small office with some, uh, some staff. But uh, yeah, the downside was it was just not something I was super passionate about. I was more interested in you know, health and fitness was something I've always been interested in. Mm. And I wanted to do something that was uh, you know, probably you know, trying to do good for the world rather than just a voucher code site which made money but didn't really... Um, excite me. Mm, okay, so you're looking for something that that kind of drove you more internally. So, what what did you? Was this like your first um, th- this uh, I guess coupon affiliate site that you had? Was this your first entrepreneurial project, or did you have other successful businesses in the past? Um, well, I think my my mum showed me a photograph of me when I was about ten years old selling flowers outside the house. I listened to a podcast the other day that you did with. Um, a guy from Lux, Lux Hair, mm-hmm. and I think he said the same sort of thing, that when he was about 10, he was selling flowers outside his house. I think my mum used to, she used to have uh, leftover plants in her greenhouse, and I think she used to give me those. She said, why don't you go and sell those? So I'd put them up, I'd get, make a little stool up and go and sell them out in front of the house. So I suppose that was the first <laughs> entrepreneurial thing. But really, after that, I basically went through the normal, the normal route of going to, going to uh, university and getting a normal job. So really, I didn't have my first proper business until I was, I think it was nearly 37 years old. So that was the coupon code website. Yeah, that, that's. Uh, I think that's an important point to talk about. You know, a lot of uh, I think it's very popular today in, in media, in the movies and TVs of these you know entrepreneurs, these startups, and you have to be you know eating ramen or eating instant noodles in, in your early twenties to run a successful business. And you know, it's it's definitely a process. You know, when, when you were going through these jobs or you know working the regular kind of following the regular kind of path that most people go down. Did you always have an entrepreneurial itch or did you just you know, wake up one day when you're 37 and say, I want to start a business? Uh, I suppose I always had it in the back of my mind that I thought I could do it, but I suppose I just um, didn't necessarily have the role models around me. Everybody I knew was just you know normal working people. So I suppose I didn't see people running their own businesses and doing it themselves. And so there wasn't a, uh, an example there for me. So I just thought I'll just do what everybody else is doing, just do a normal job um, and, you know, I wasn't a wealthy, don't come from a wealthy background. I needed to, uh, you know, pay the bills and I needed to get my own house and pay for my own car and those types of things. And so I couldn't really um, see an alternative at the time. So what happened was when I was thinking about 37, I started running the business before I left 
uh, my full-time job. I started doing that in the evening for probably up to a year um, pre-leaving my job just to prove that I could do it rather than just uh, you know jacking my job in and just starting a new business. I wanted to prove to myself I could do it. So I started working evenings and weekends for probably a good year before I actually left. Um, built the business up to um, not certainly not very big, but enough so the money was coming in the door and thinking if I had more time, if I had more time, I could do this. So what we did is saved up some money, said to my wife, look, I'm going to take six months, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to take six months to, to, to have a crack at this business. We've got enough money in the bank to pay the mortgage for six months and pay all our bills. At the end of that six months, if I'm not earning the same as my salary, then I'll go back and get a job again. That was the deal that I had with her. And so we, we agreed that, and that's what we did. But within three months, I was earning more than my salary, and that was it. That was the uh, uh, th- thereafter. I just stayed in the business and, and grew it to you know, a multi-million pound business. That's awesome. So what did, you, what did you feel like you had to put in place before you were able to, to start your own business? You know, obviously, the quitting your job thing helped a lot because you were able to now devote a lot of time. But were there other things that were missing? So you mentioned, too, that, that one big thing was that you didn't see other kind of role models, other people in your life that were following this entrepreneurial path. But then you start, started seeing that or started feeling that. Like what else did you feel like you had to put in place before you were able to, to kind of take the leap into entrepreneurship? I suppose I just needed to believe I could do. It. I suppose if you if you when you start doing it in the evening, the, the beauty of the internet, I suppose, is that you can you can join affiliate programs and you can generate money that way. You don't need to buy massive amounts of stock or anything like that. You don't need any stock or offices. You can just literally start. So I started just to prove to myself that I could do this. And when you start seeing the money coming into the affiliate programs, you can start seeing that yeah, this is this is real. I can do this. And when that sort of grew up to, um, you know, I can't remember what it, what it would have been when I when I finished my job, maybe a thousand, two thousand pounds a month or something like that. I started seeing real numbers coming in and started thinking, yeah, if I could do this full time, if I could put everything into it, then I could maybe make that five thousand pounds a month or something like that. And uh, that's what I needed was just evidence that I could do it. I think one, one important thing to talk about is this idea of you know quitting your job and going in because you had this uh, feeling in the back of your uh, head or back of your mind that if you just had more time, you could grow the business faster. And I think this is a stage that a lot of maybe listeners, other entrepreneurs are at where they're trying to decide when is that point because there is a, a certain, a certain um, I guess, stage of your business where time is a limiting factor and sometimes it's not the limiting factor. How, did you, how were you able to, to I guess, identify that it was time that was the issue because I think it was that that year that year that I'd spent I sort of felt confident that I knew I could um, you know I'd made some mistakes I'd learned some stuff that I didn't know so for example I'm saying my SEO skills they were probably not up to scratch when I first started but by the end of that year I sort of I could sit you know get traffic to certain pages and so I just knew that if I had more time I could send traffic to more pages I could actually optimize more pages and therefore I'd get more money I knew that page was generating I don't know, a thousand pounds a month. Therefore, if I had more pages, I would get more money. It just, it just felt at the right time. I just um, felt confident. I obviously looked at some competitors who were earning a lot more money. I knew what some of them were earning, you know, very roughly, but I could see their traffic and I could see they weren't that much better than what, what my site was, but they just had more pages or they had more uh, links. And I just thought, well, if I couldn't have more time, I would get more money. I just, just felt, you just get immersed in it, you know. The, you get a little bit obsessed, I suppose, but you just look very closely at other other people that are just a you know next ladder, uh, run rung up the ladder than you. You just think, well, I could catch them if I had a bit more time. Mm, yeah, so you pretty much knew exactly how you would spend your days because what you were working on 
was so directly tied to revenue, so directly tied to sales that you knew that if you just had more time to put into it, then it would actually equate to sales. I think that's an important point because if you can't imagine what you would do with your time if you were to quit your job, I think it might be a little bit too early because you don't have something that you could scale up just by applying more time to it. But you were able to identify that, which is what sounds like the reason why you're able to explode the business so quickly when you had more time. Yeah, so, definitely. Mm-hmm. So what um what, what did you you know definitely want to move move on for move into more of the, the e-commerce side? So what what lessons did you learn though from running this business, either SEO wise or marketing wise, that you're able to grow such a successful, such a profitable business in just you know a couple of years? I think it was the uh, right time. So it wasn't just me being really good. It was just basically the right time as well that everybody was becoming more aware of these, these types of coupon code websites. I got in early enough, so there was lots of competition when I got in, but there wasn't hundreds and hundreds of competition. So mm. a lot of it was timing. Um, but I did have a background. My, my full-time job was as, um, as uh, a digital marketing person. So I did have a lot of knowledge of that sector. So I just felt that uh, a lot of the other people that, were, uh, that I was competing with, either they didn't have that previous experience or they didn't have um uh you know they got there through a little bit of luck as well possibly in good timing from them so i suppose it was just a uh um a race as such to to grow and keep those positions and google at the time was fairly not easy it's maybe a little bit uh over egging it but they they were reasonably easy to um reverse engineer and understand exactly what you mm-hmm. needed to do to to generate um rankings whereas now because of panda and um and Penguin is, is much more tricky to understand. So at the time, it was something that you could understand. I need to get this amount of links. I need to get the uh, um, quality content on the site. You could you could actually do that and realize what was required. And as long as you were prepared to put the grind in to get it get it done, you could get the money coming in. Mm-hmm. So the, you mentioned that this is a lot to do with timing. Was it was it something that you saw coming, or maybe the question I want to ask is? Uh, for someone out there that's thinking about starting a business, getting into a specific industry, are there key ta- are there like signs you can look out for to see that okay, I'm going to be riding. I, I found a wave that's going to be you know growing over time rather than flatlining or declining. Uh, yeah, I think there probably are a couple of signals. It's probably one of the ones for me was people were starting to boast about how much money they were earning in this particular space. And so mm. when people start boasting about things, then you start realizing there must be some really good money there to, to, to be earned. And um, it was just, you just see it popping up. You see more and more popping up in different blogs, people talking about it or even newspapers. It's difficult to, you know, obviously that you can be too early to, for things. But I think mm. for this, you just, you just, it's very difficult to define exactly, but you just get a gut feel that when something is uh, a market saturated or being done before, yes, you can still enter it if you've got a different uh, twist on it. But in general, this sort of sector wasn't swamped at the time. There was a fair few people in there, but it wasn't com- wasn't super professional. Everybody was in there, and you knew the really super professional people with money behind them would, was going to come. So I just jumped in and uh, you know tried it for. Um, you know, a fair few months. I did a whole year, but it wasn't a whole year on the on the coupon uh, code website. So I did uh, probably I don't know six months before I, I left my full time job. So I just proved to myself that it could work. But yeah, you, you just get a gut feel when when you really immerse yourself in a certain space. Yeah, and the window seems you know uh, three years you know can seem long to some people, but it's a very short period of time. Like that window is not that large for you to sometimes identify opportunities, get in, and it looks like you got out you know before it kind of got oversaturated. So I think it's it's definitely 
um, a skill if you can develop uh, definitely a valuable skill you can you can develop but then you also have to move quickly once you identify you can't just you know recognize it and take your time either no um, exactly cool so let's move on to um to to after you sold the business you had some you had a good amount of money that you could could live off of or give you at least the time to start other businesses so body hack limited tell us a little bit more about that like so you mentioned it was basically like a a heavy content site within a uh, basically um, a store attached to it as well yeah, the the idea was, I mean, if you think of, uh, I don't know, um, in this country, we've got uh, insurance comparison sites where basically you uh-huh. put in certain details and the, the, the cheapest insurance for you comes to the top. The idea was we we're going to do that for fitness programs. If you wanted a, I don't know, uh, vegan uh, weight loss program, you'd put those details in and, and we would have had 10, 20 different, different uh, vegan diets and fitness exercise programs would have been uh, trialed by people and the ones that had the best results would float to the top. And that was the idea. And then you could just click a link by, by, by that particular program so you get the full details of what the person ate and all the exercise they did. But it just was very, very uh, time-consuming to produce each one of those programs. And as I said, I was one of the guinea pigs for that. So that was three months' work. I really, you know, you have to watch everything you eat, record everything you do, record all the exercise you do. It's very time-consuming. I just thought to scale this up, it's either going to cost a load of money and just it wasn't the signals weren't coming into me that um, uh, people were really going to do this. I mean, the first first sort of week we went live, I got onto the homepage of Hacker News. We got you know a ton of traffic, people buying the programs. I think almost in the first day we sort of done hundreds of pounds worth of programs. I was just thinking, wow, this is going to go somewhere. But that quickly died down again, and we just we had about five male uh, programs in the site. And people wanted female ones, and we just knew that it's going to take another three months to put the females through the site. It just, uh, it was something you couldn't, you couldn't do badly if you know what I mean. You almost needed hundreds and hundreds to start from day one. But I didn't want to commit to producing hundreds and hundreds of programs in case when I produced them, people didn't want to buy them. So it was a little bit of a chicken and egg, and I decided to not commit to producing hundreds of programs. It was going to cost me. A lot of money so um sort of shelved the idea sort of slowly sort of ramped it down and started looking around for other opportunities mm. so you you um i, I think this is i heard, heard this issue too uh, on a previous podcast which was about um selling essentially digital products right products that are not necessarily physical and that you actually had to pr- produce essentially in-house and one of the biggest issues with that is that Every time you want to create a new product line, you can't just necessarily outsource it or else or it would be very expensive. Like you're saying, you have to constantly be churning out your own content, churning out these different programs. So was that the biggest issue was just that the production of the the product Mm. line, essentially the programs was so heavy or was it the was it because I think you you said something previous too about how the customers of the the clients, I guess, of your of these of your site, of your programs, it was also overly complicated for them. Um, I suppose one of my sometimes I told my friends how to do it for them. Yes, yeah, sometimes it is too complicated. People want a, a quick solution to their fitness problems or their weight problems, and you know when when you know this why sometimes the the ones that do the best are the ones that tell you it is a quick fix. I mean, we've got a magazine here in the office at the moment. We get sent some free magazines. This is a a one week fat loss program. You're not going to lose any fat in one mm-hmm. week. But when you tell people that this is going to be t- say twelve weeks of harder work then they don't want to listen so much. So I think that is a slight downside that when, t- when you tell the truth, people don't want to um, uh, be, a, they're not, it's not as attractive to them. But when you, people give a quick fix, 
even though um, the people telling you a quick fix probably know themselves that it's not going to work, but people just like those quick fixes. But that's not our that's not our uh, attitude. We want to tell people the truth. And uh, yeah, for some people, it was too complicated. Mm, makes sense. Okay, so from from Body Hack Limited, and then you decided then is that when when you when you realized that it was such a hard process to create these programs, that's when you decided to look elsewhere. How did you come across the idea of creating Huel? Well, the the uh, the the whey proteins were just so convenient. I just felt that you know it's not the exercise that necessarily makes people lose uh, fat. Is uh, ensuring they're consuming the right calories, i.e., a, a deficit of calories. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that, if you think if you've got a plate of food in front of you, unless you've weighed all of that food, it's very difficult to know exactly how many calories you're having. So you're guessing. And if you're guessing on calories, you're certainly guessing on, on macro and micronutrients. You don't really know what you're eating. So when I was using the protein shakes, it just made perfect sense. I was just looking at it thinking, well, this, I know exactly how much protein I'm getting. Why don't you put my carbs in there and the fat in there and the micronutrients? It just make perfect sense. And the, the one key thing for me as well is when I started talking to my friends about it, they said, what are you doing next? And usually when I tell them about what I'm doing, they don't take that much notice. But when I started explaining Huel to them, you could see their sort of interest um, um, be raised. And so mm. they were looking at me like, I want to know more about this. And so I started thinking, ah, I'm not actually forcing, this, forcing them to tell them. They're actually interested in asking me questions. So, and it was a, I was a customer of their own product as well. I wanted that product as well. So for me, it was something I wanted. My friends were interested in it. They wanted it. And I thought, well... They're um, usually highly critical. You know, they're not going to be people who are just going to say to me, oh, that's a wonderful idea when they don't believe it. They'll, they'll tell me if they think it's rubbish. So the good news was that I got those early signals that this was definitely something that would work. Mm, yeah, this is a lesson that I've learned uh, previously too that's more, I think, in the software space, but I think it's really applicable anywhere, which is that when you're selling things to people, selling products to people, you want to sell them things. It's a lot easier to sell them things that end up reducing the work that they have to do than requiring them to do more work. And that sounds like the, the kind of issue, I mean, looking back, you know, 2020, hindsight's 2020, but looking back on, on Body Hack compared to Hue, Body Hack required people to do more work by, you know, purchasing this thing that they're buying, while Hue when they purchased it, it reduced the amount of work that they had to do because now they don't have to, you know, count all these macros and calories and all of that, like you're saying. So I think uh, that's a important point to make is that you don't, it's a lot easier to sell something if it makes the person's life easier, not necessarily harder. So I think that's an important point. So, um, so when you uh, started Heal, were there parts of Body Hack that you were able to, um, I guess, use as a launching pad for Heal or was it a brand uh, starting from scratch? It was sort of starting from scratch. I mean, the Body Hack website still exists. I've just, I, I was, it's, um, it's, it hurts me to think I've got to shut it down one day. But yeah, I've kept it alive. It's still there. You can't actually buy the programs. I don't even know why it's still alive, but no, it's still there. But there was no, there was no launch pad really from it at all. This was a brand new, um, brand new uh, business as such, a brand new brand. And, um, you know, I just knew that uh, branding was going to be really, really important because, uh, food products you can't trademark or patent the um, recipes so I just knew in the long term that brands can be really important so the example I would give is like something like a Red Bull um, there's lots of copycats of Red Bull and so we just felt that uh, Huel needed to have really strong branding. Mm, makes sense that, that um, branding is important I didn't think about that but like you're saying you can't hide the ingredients people can't figure it out anyway so why, that's why branding is so important so when you um, decided to to, uh, to start Huel what, what was the what were the first steps like did you have to go through a period of creating the the products like how do you even begin to create your own essentially food product 
Well, the first thing was for me, because I'm not a nutritionist, I'd worked with a nutritionist in the past, but I needed to find, you know, the, the best nutritionist I could find to work with to make sure the formula was going to be, um, you know, as good as it could be from a nutrition point of view. So that was really important. You know, I'm not in this to make to make money. Clearly, it's a business, but this is not my, you know, I don't need to, to do that. So one thing I wanted to do was make sure I'm not making a crappy product. I wanted to make something that I was really proud of. So I wanted to find the best nutritionist I could, and that was the first step: was to find a nutritionist, and together we put together the program, uh, put together the uh, the uh, the formula. Mm, so was it like a trial and error thing, or did you guys pretty much know these were the ingredients you wanted, and then um, just put it together that way? Well, James Collier, he's got uh, like 25 years experience in nutrition. He works with uh, MAA fighters. He works with uh, uh, strong men. He works with um, bodybuilders. So he's, he really knows the industry really well, and he just knows nutrition you know, just so clearly that he really quite quickly we put the formula together. You know, he just knew what were good products. So our main carb source is oats. It's a, it's a natural product. It's uh, full of phytonutrients. It's uh, got protein, fats, and carbs in it. You know, it's just a really, really good product. So he just knew those sorts of things straight away. And he said that would be, you know, the core for, for the carb source in terms of the balance of uh, micro and macro nutrients. He just, he just knew everything straight away. So pretty quickly, the formula we got today is pretty close to the original one we created pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So once you have this formula, you have to go to a specific producer. Like, how do you, when you're creating a food product, how's it different than? I, I'm not sure how much experience you have with other kind of uh, physical products, but uh, based on your experience, how how is it different than just you know getting like clothing made, for example? I don't know about clothing, but my background has always been uh, pretty much website stuff. And for a website, you can turn a website around, you know, pretty quickly. You know, when I first started, we put the formula together pretty quickly. Uh, we got the branding done pretty quickly. We got the website pretty done pretty quickly. And I just assumed the product would get done within, say, I think originally I thought about three months. Um, it took us nearly a year to get to market. Mm. It was just so so slow. It's really really you know, physical products are just a different different beast to websites. It's just so much harder. There's so many more things to think about, and just the industry is just so much slower. You know, you don't have control anymore with the website. You can either code it yourself or get someone to code it, or you can use a platform like WordPress or Shopify. And it's just uh, physical product is really so hard. It's so frustrating. You know, people would let us down. We had people, you know, even like really big, well-known multinational companies said, yeah, we can do this, we can do this. And we worked with them, multiple emails, backwards and forwards, meetings. Um, and then four months in, they said, no, sorry, we're, we're pulling out. And don't even give a valid reason. It was just really, really frustrating. Mm, so uh, w- if you had to start from scratch or start over again and go down this process again, like what, what kind of things would you make sure to do at least that were in your control to make it go smoother? I, I don't know whether there is. We're, we're making another product at the moment and we're, we're experiencing the same things over again. It is so difficult. We're just, uh, so we're making a different uh, form factor at the moment. And um, so we had to deal with different manufacturers. Our current manufacturer couldn't produce it. So we've been dealing with quite reputable people who deal with new product development and they've let us down. Uh, they worked with us for sort of nearly on three months, and the product they produced was just not up to scratch at all, just like way off. Um, manufacturers, we've we've searched and searched and searched. We've met multiple ones, and we're dealing with some at the moment of making the right noises, but we're still not there. I mean, we nearly had this product out last October, so um, and, you know it's going to be lucky if we're out this this October again. It's another year to get to market. I mean, it's just lucky that I had some money behind me. If you're starting off from scratch today and you're dealing with a physical product, you've got to be uh, um, you know, forewarned that it's, it's a lot harder to do. If, if, if it was my choice and if I was, didn't have money behind me, then I wouldn't go into physical products. I'd go into to website stuff, make some money from those first, 
and then go and try and do the physical product later. Mm, interesting. So um, I, I definitely want to talk about that point before we move off this topic. What what goes wrong, I guess, in this in this process? What kind of things should other entrepreneurs that are thinking about uh, physical products or maybe specifically food products, what things can they expect, not necessarily expect, but to look out for that might go wrong during this uh, year-long process for you? I think the first thing is, the, the one thing after we just came up against brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. We said to people, we said, why, do you, why, why is this so hard to get something to the market? And one of the, the, one of the, after asking multiple manufacturers, one of them did actually say, he said, look, the reason is we get approached all the time um, by startups or people with just an idea for a product, and most of them are just flaky. They're not going to come through with anything. Either they've got no money behind them or it's just an idea they've got and they're not going to you know, market it right. And they're not gonna, so we're going to spend a load of time developing a product when we could be making something for somebody who's already successful. So why would we spend our time to produce a product for you and then you, we make it, you order, I don't know, a small batch of, say, 5,000, when usually they're used to dealing with batches of 50,000, 100,000 plus. So we're going to make a small batch for you. So uh, economies of scale are going to be poor. We spent a lot of time to develop it. Then you get that batch of 5,000. You go away. You can't sell it because you've got no market or you just haven't done your marketing right. And we don't get reorder. So it's just a lot of wasted time and energy for us. So that's why. And one of them said we get hundreds of we get hundreds of requests every week from startups or from um, small companies. So in general, it's just we just don't touch them. And that was the only. So in terms of advice, what I can give, I don't really know how to, to counter that. The only way you can do is you have to just keep you have to just keep banging away. Uh, and eventually you'll find somebody maybe just pick smaller companies, smaller startups themselves that are actually manufacturers or even consider making it yourself which we've done with our latest product, we've actually started looking at machinery to do it ourselves. Again, that's a big capital investment to do that. So I'm not sure I can give very good advice, especially in the food industry. It's just very, very tricky to get something to market that doesn't exist today. So all, all their attention, all these attention from the, the manufacturers are focused on their existing large clients and then working yeah. with smaller brand new companies is highly risky for them. So that's yes. why they tend to, you know, I guess, divert resources from you or from new companies over to, to the existing relationships. That makes sense. So are there ways then that you found to get manufacturers to, I guess, believe in you, or believe in your abilities or believe in your company more? Well, the last, the last meeting we had, which went very well, we had to actually, like, I, I, I said, do you want to see our sales figures? And they said, no, we don't need to see them. We, tr- we trust you. I said, no, I think I'm going to actually show you. So we got our sales figures out for the last 12 months. And we started going through them and showing them to say, look, you know, we're not a Mickey Mouse company. We are legit. We will generate volume. And we just need your help to get this product to market. And once we do, I'm pretty sure this new product will be more successful than our current one. So we will generate these sorts of volumes and this sort of growth. And that's, that's what we can do now, but we've got that behind us. But if you're starting from scratch, you don't even have that to use. So it is even trickier. The, the, luckily, what we did is we, you know, if you search the internet and find manufacturers, you're going to find the, probably the bigger ones first. Sometimes you have to start you know, lower down the list for companies which are smaller that you might not have heard of, and they might be on the third, fourth, fifth page of Google and try and find the smaller ones. And, of course, they're going to be keener to work with new people because they don't have big clients at the moment. They don't, or they, they're actually looking for clients themselves. So that's the only sort of advice I can probably give is you, you need to start at the smallest company you can find, not the, not the first companies you find. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because if you are the smallest client for a manufacturer, the only way to grow sometimes when you're brand new is to go find a smaller manufacturer so that you become a much more, uh, I guess, attractive client for them because they're looking for 
more, they're looking for clients. They're more desperate, I guess, for clients than the much larger manufacturers. And so do you, do you um, recommend or do you personally go after or work with multiple manufacturers at once to avoid this issue of people dropping out along the way? Well, luckily, the manufacturer we're working with at the moment has been very good to us. We've been with the same manufacturer for the last year. They're very good. Um, they do deal with other small businesses, um, but we're now their biggest client. Um, and they've got a dedicated uh, manufacturing plant for us now as well. So I'm not really sure what else they deal with in terms of uh, smaller clients. But yeah, I think that they were very surprised at our growth. And um, and therefore, they might be a little bit more open to dealing with new um, startups now because they can see that it can work. And this is where manufacturers probably just shoot themselves in the foot a little bit by turning everybody down. They're probably mm-hmm. missing opportunities sometimes. And so, so um, you know, after you were finally able to, as before that, while you're in the process of creating Huel for the first time over that entire year, were you were you just putting Huel on, on the back burner, or were you focused on the marketing? What were you focused on during that year while you're waiting for the product to be finished on the more sales and marketing side? Uh, uh, well, we, we, <laughs> I don't even know what, how that year passed, really, but we felt busy but we didn't achieve a great deal so it was a lot of time and effort trying to find people trying to persuade people we were working with people um but just they were letting us down so we were still working it's just they didn't actually produce at the end of sometimes four months or we were working with other people for two months and uh, going backwards and forwards to their offices up and down the country meeting them so we were busy in that time we weren't super super busy but we weren't busy and i suppose the rest of the time i was just literally just pulling my hair out getting really frustrated and trying not to um trying to get too frustrated because I think it just is a very slow process and you just have to just at the start of it I was very used to dealing with um sort of websites that I could turn around very quickly and I think you know that's one piece of another piece of advice I give to somebody that just accept that it's going to take a long time to produce something and don't sort of get too frustrated and um you know end up shouting at people or something like that because it's just it's a slow process. They've got other clients to deal with. They're not necessarily set up to do new product development. And this is one thing that, um, you know, I did talk to some other guys and say, why don't you have like a separate unit, like a smaller unit where you can just experiment and do smaller uh, runs of products, not having to go into the main production line where, you know, the demands are much higher in terms of uh, initial numbers. So you can experiment and get some smaller businesses off the ground. But there just aren't that many people who specialize in new product development. So were you, um, during this year then of uh, waiting for something to be produced, were you driving traffic or building buzz um, around Hugh? No, no, we weren't at all because, again, it was just uh, from Body Hack, I'd put quite a lot of money into that and that didn't go anywhere. So I suppose I was always a little bit hesitant mm. to put too much money behind this one, especially when it's not just my money, it's my wife's money, my, my child's money, to um, put it behind another product that might go nowhere. So I was always a little bit hesitant. So we didn't spend too much this time until we actually got to market. And then once we started seeing the initial sales coming through, then it was much easier to have that discussion to say, look, I'm going to put some more money behind this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that you finally got the manufacturer and you are ready to to put some money to invest into the business, how are you driving the traffic or the sales early on? The early sales came through... Um, uh, Facebook groups. Uh, sometimes that's accidental as well. I went on a couple of Facebook groups. There was one Facebook group that was about startups. It was quite big, about 17,000. And I can remember I just went on there asking, these are genuine questions. I wasn't promoting Huel at all. I was just literally just asking some genuine questions about how to do certain things. And uh, you know, I mentioned we just launched. 
And that was some of the earliest sales came through that. Yeah, this is, um, uh, it sounds to be, I guess, a more popular, I guess, strategy now. Facebook groups all of a sudden come back into the marketing, I guess, mix for a lot of a lot of businesses. Is that still something that you focus on? Maybe, I'm not sure if at this scale if you bothered doing Facebook groups, but is that a recommended approach for other entrepreneurs that are just starting out to get involved in these communities? I think it's definitely worth getting involved. I mean, I did that for my benefit in terms of the startup advice I was getting or the the contacts I was getting rather than pushing the company. But certainly Mm -hmm. I noticed that I was definitely getting sales from that group. So those initial sales could be useful. I don't think it's something that's going to, as you say, drive significant sales. But in your first early sales, you know, they're really important just to give you confidence this is the right place to go. Um, So, yeah, I definitely recommend it for the really early days. Mm-hmm. So then, from there on, uh, and once you start getting the first sales in the door, it sounded like you feel more felt more confident in investing more into this business. What was the next step? Like, what kind of um, I guess uh, marketing process or system did you want? Did you envision setting up for for Huel? The PR was the next big thing that we did. So we did uh, we got a PR agency in, spent a bit of money on that. It wasn't too expensive. Um, and that went really, really well. We've been on TV a couple of times. We've been in most of the national newspapers in the UK, quite a few magazines as well, quite a few blogs. So that initial uh, PR worked for us in two ways. One, it worked in terms of traffic and sales, but it also worked in terms of credibility. I think selling a food product is something, you know, people are going to put that product inside their body. They've never heard of your company before, but if they can see a logo to say that this has been on uh, the BBC, this has been on CNN, this has been in uh, the Daily Mail. I think it gives people a little bit more confidence that this is a legit product, it's not something made in somebody's garage. Mm. So is this the first step that you recommend others try to once they're ready to start scaling up their marketing is to invest in PR? Yeah, definitely. I think PR is something that, uh, you know, the, the downside of PR that you're not, it's not directly measurable and mm-hmm. It's not guaranteed you're going to get anything. So if your product is just um, um, not newsworthy, then probably not worth spending money on PR. You probably won't get any PR. But if you if your product is interesting, newsworthy, and you find uh, a, a good PR agency, then yes, I think it probably would be a wise move. Mm. So do you think that you could have had some similar success with uh, PR without hiring a PR, PR agency? Or is this, you think, a... Uh, definitely uh, highly, I guess, uh, advantageous for somebody to to look for a PR agency? I think to just kickstart it, I think it's definitely important. We got quite a lot of PR or, or interest directly. We got called from t- some TV, we got called from some radio and some press just directly, just because they'd seen us either through on Facebook or they'd seen us in other articles. But um, I think if you haven't got if you don't kickstart it, it's quite hard to get it going. So I think maybe, you know, even if your budgets are very small, maybe we only did it for the first three months. After launch, we did it for the first three months and then we paused the campaign to see if we could survive without spending the money on the PR. Um, so that's something which I probably would recommend. You know, if you're really short money, maybe just spend a month or two. Tell the PR agency, look, I want to, I want to do a two-month test. I want to launch this product with PR um, and ask them if they think they can get PR, if, they, if they're confident they can get it, and you get the price and the price is right for you, then um, it's definitely worth getting it because those logos of you being in, in the press 
um, will stay with you forever. You can keep those forever. You've always been in that publication. So similar to when they launch um, a film, you know, you get those little quotes underneath a film saying, uh, you know, the Daily Mail says this or the Guardian says this about a particular film and gives it a star rating. Those things do add credibility and do add confidence to the, the buyer. So I think, yeah, it probably would be wise if you've got an interesting product. I like that that you were mentioning hiring a PR agency to kind of kick off this snowball effect of additional PR because once you have the the features in these popular publications, then other publications are going to want to talk to you as well because they've discovered through there or like you have all these you know amazing logos on your site that gives you again credibility with your customers like you're saying, and then when you do want to go out and pitch to other publications, you have all of this kind of like pedigree essentially that you can point to on. Your your resume and say, look, all of these other publications have already featured us and it makes it a lot easier to pitch. So when someone does, uh, if an entrepreneur or business out there wants to consider this and you don't have to review how much you paid, but like what kind of budget levels do we need to, do you need to at least be open to before this even makes sense? Um, I would probably say you can probably get, it's like anything like web development, you can probably get it very cheap and you can get it very expensive. I would say that somewhere between three Three and five thousand pounds per month will get you a pretty decent uh, agency with a pretty decent um, campaign. I suppose in general they charge around five hundred pounds a day for a reasonable agency. So you're basically buying the amount of days they're going to put in per month. I suppose you could maybe get away with a day or two with some agencies, but most will probably want a minimum of say uh, five days. That's two thousand five hundred, something like that. Okay, makes sense. So, uh, how should you prepare? I mean, if you are about to hire a PR agency, like, are there things that you need to make sure that you're ready to do so you can get uh, take the most advantage of these, you know, days that you're purchasing? I would say you definitely need to have uh, some photographs ready. So, uh, I had to get some headshots for myself. Obviously, you want to get some good shots of your product because what they're going to do, if they're going to write about you, they're going to want a picture of yourself, if um, you know the, the founder, and they're going to want a picture of your product. And they need to be good products, uh, product shots, not something you photograph yourself. So I'd spend a little bit of money on those. I'm not talking mega money. Um, you can probably spend as little as uh, £25 per shot from a, you know, a good local photographer. And uh, so you need those. You need to have... Um, uh, obviously, they're going to produce a, a press release for you, but you need to work with them on the first press release and also write a good sort of summary of what the product is and the benefits that it offers. So somebody would hopefully write sometimes the benefits and what the product is in your words, because sometimes they just take what's straight from the press release. So you need to get those things really sort of uh, worked out first before you start issuing it, get story straight as such. And... Um, and that's it, really. I think. I suppose the only other thing is sometimes, such as doing these podcasts. Sometimes I've done a couple of these now. Buy yourself a half decent microphone. I hope it sounds mm-hmm. good today. Um, and um, those types of things can can uh, make you sound a bit more professional, hopefully. And um, yeah. That should yeah, be enough. Yeah, I think that's that's great the preparation plan because you don't want to end up spending you know five hundred pounds a day and all of a sudden spend waste the whole day uh, not have everything prepared and kind of you know not make the most use out of the the, the campaign that you have set up. Uh, so you, one thing you mentioned earlier was about for before you even consider using PR as a marketing channel, your product and your company, your business, you need to have some kind of story. It needs to be newsworthy. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how do you know if your product is actually newsworthy or not? Uh, I suppose you you just got to think from a journalist's point of view, there's millions of products out there and they get approached every day by somebody selling a new product, like a, I don't know, a new beer or a new drink or something like that. Is And you've got to think, what is the angle from them? What are they going to write that's newsworthy? So Huel was newsworthy because 
the angle they took was to say, you know, you can replace all of your food. You don't need to eat food again, even though fuel is food, just in a different format. Um, but it's not traditional food in in sense of it's uh, a powder. You can't see what's there. So people sort of uh, some of the news stories were about um, the Matrix. In there, they they have a product which is um, everything you need in a single a single uh, meal. So they had you know they could have a little bit of fun with it. They could actually play with it. Whereas if you just said I've launched a new beer and it tastes better than other people's beers, that's not newsworthy. If you said I've launched a new beer that's um, I don't know. There's some been new ones recently. They've got uh, brandy in them or vodka in it, something different. So those sort of things sometimes. But if you said I've just launched a new beer and all of our staff are, um, I don't know, different in some way, then that might be newsworthy. You've got to think it, think it through from a journalist's point of view. Can they play with the idea? Is it something they can associate with something else? Is it a growing trend of something? Um, but if you just launch a new product, you want to get the, the press, but the press don't want to write about you. Mm. Yeah, even if they were to accept uh, a story about you, and or even if the PR agency was able to sell it to uh, um, uh, a publication, if it's not newsworthy or interesting, then you're not going to get the kind of, uh, I guess, publicity, or you're not going to get the kind of, um, I guess, virality from it anyway, because no one's going to be interested in hearing about another, you know, beer product. It needs to have some kind of story behind it. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, let's talk about actually, you know, running the business itself. So when you started it, was it just, it was just you and then you had a co-founder? Like, when did you guys start scaling the team up? Um, pretty quickly, I think, because the orders started coming in quite quick. And I was uh, picking and packing the orders myself. I had a very small little warehouse. I was doing that myself, and quite quickly, I just couldn't handle the orders myself. So the delivery van would come in at 2 o'clock, and I was rushing around all morning trying to pick pick the orders, put them in the boxes, make sure it was correct, send emails to the customers. It was just quite quickly it became uh, uh, too much. So I took on um, an assistant, and together we used to do the orders in the morning, and we used to do work in the afternoon. And then quite quickly, we, we, it was ended up taking a whole day. We weren't able to do any work apart from picking and packing. So then what we did, we outsourced the fulfillment to a fulfillment house, which then freed up our day totally that then me and the assistant could uh, work full time on growing the business. And then we just uh, slowly scaled from there. So how, how do you how do you make the decision to uh, what's your thought process or decision making process around outsourcing a task versus keeping it in house or maybe even just keeping it within within you? The it was a simple calculation really. What we worked out was the delivery charge we would be in charge plus the cost of the box. So what we did is worked out it's going to cost us this amount to deliver. I think it was uh, off the top of my head, so it was six pounds plus there's the time that it took to do each box. We had time how long it take us to do each box the cost of each box, the packing that goes in each box. So we totaled that. The fulfillment house was slightly more expensive, but then we just believed that our time was worth more than what that slight increase Mm. was, and therefore it's just a simple calculation. Makes sense. So now what do you, I guess, spend your time doing? Like, What what is your day-to-day like when you wake up, walk into the office? Like, How do you spend your days? Well, the thing is, is there's five of us in the office now, and and I and you know when I first started, I ran the business by myself. I mean, the the month, sorry, um, 
it's amazing how much time just gets swallowed up just doing different things. So, for example, when we first launched, I, I had a look this morning, the orders per month, we're now doing 3,700% more in uh, last month than we did equivalent of June 2015. So it's grown extremely quickly. And so it's just so much more to do. Everything scales up. There's more customer service. There's more um, Facebook. There's more replies. There's more social media. There's more photography in required. There's new product development. So it's just a myriad of different tasks. Then you've got more team to manage. You've got to instruct them what to do. Um, I don't know. I don't, sometimes I don't know what I do do, but um, I just know I'm incredibly busy and I just struggle to keep up with my emails at the moment. Mm, makes sense. So how, how successful is the business today? Like you said, 3,700% growth from last year to the, to the, I guess, the previous year and comparing those two months. How successful is the business today? We do, in the first 12 months, we did over 12, sorry, did over 2 million pounds in revenue. We have sold over 1.5 million meals. This is 500 calorie meals. Uh, we've uh, got over 200,000 visitors to the website per month. And we've got tens of thousands of paying customers. Um, so that gives you a rough, rough idea of the scale. That, that's amazing. Yeah, what, do you, what would you credit this kind of fast growth to? You know, because these are obviously amazing numbers, but even more amazing within just this kind of a short time frame, especially the 2 million pounds you said within the first 12 months. Like, was it just all PR? Like, what, what, what would you credit it to as well, just like growing that quickly? I think it's a product that people wanted. I don't think people even knew that it's sort of this product could exist. We've done quite a good job of making it, you know, getting it into the press and making people aware this product exists. But I think people just want this. I think there's so many people, um, you know, we, what we often say is clearly whole food is, you know, if you get a nutritionally complete meal, if you know what you're doing, if you can construct a meal out of whole foods um, that's nutritionally complete, got all the fatty acids you need, all the essential amino acids and all the essential vitamins and minerals, then that's the best thing you can do. And if you've got time to do that, that's brilliant please carry on and do that. But the majority of people don't have the time to do that or they don't have the knowledge of how to construct um, food, um, you know, a meal that's nutritionally complete. And so they, they end up, you know, obviously in the UK, the most popular lunch would probably be a sandwich. The po most popular snack will probably be crisps or chocolate. The most popular breakfast will probably be toast. Um, and most of those or all of those will be more processed than fuel and, ne and less nutritious and certainly not nutritionally complete. So I think people are aware... I mean, in this country, we've got 64% of people are overweight. We've got a real ep epidemic almost with diabetes. And, uh, you know, we've got numerous other problems. People are aware that, um, you know, sometimes the way animals are treated in farms is um, inhumane. So mm -hmm. she was a vegan product. So there's lots of things that people are aware of. And they know there's a problem with our food chain. And uh, they didn't really know what the solution was. They know they should probably eat in healthy. But every time you pick up a newspaper or magazine, there's almost um, a different story than was there was the week before. So people do get confused about what they should be eating or not eating. Um, but with Fuel the Beauty, is it's already done for you. You know, we've, we focus on this heavily. We know what we're talking about. So we've created a product which is healthy, it's nutritionally complete, it's balanced, uh, it's using sustainable resources, um, it's minimal packaging, it's high in fiber, it's um, high in protein, it's very, very low in sugar. So we've basically created a product that does ticks a lot of boxes for people and therefore that's why the sales have been so good because it just satisfies the demand that, um, that people have got.
<laughs> I think you sold me. I think it's funny because I live in New York City and you see this this trend happening where maybe a couple of years ago, there's a big um, focus, or not big focus, big service of just delivering food, right? People don't want to go through a shopping experience, don't want to have to deal with purchasing food. And then it's become more and more, I guess, done for you, whereas now uh, they deliver the food to you with specific recipes that you can make. And now it's gotten to the point where it's all meal prepping for you to live, deliver it as well. So more and more easy to eat healthy but now this is a step even more convenient where you don't have to put anything together you don't have to think about it and then just kind of consume it. i think that that's uh that makes a lot of sense that the, the trend that you've you've been able to to notice and kind of hitch onto is that people want to be healthy but they just the, the time that they have to do is has just become more and more limiting so I think you've definitely hit on a, on a market here. Uh, obviously, it's due to your success. So, tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, writing the business itself. You know, so you have a team already. You already, you have the obviously you super busy. Are you do you do you depend on any tools or apps to help you run the business? Yeah, I just had a quick look at our apps this morning. So uh, we use Bold Apps, uh, recurring orders. So we do subscriptions on Huel as well. Uh, we use. Uh, S loyalty, which is a refer a friend scheme, but unfortunately they've actually stopped the refer a friend part of that that app now. We use Spently for uh, email, and we use a couple of survey apps, and I can't remember what the names are off the top of my head. They're the main apps that we we do use. We do outsource quite a lot. Like I said, we've outsourced the fulfillment. We sort of outsource the manufacturing. We outsource uh, graphic design. We outsource uh, our Facebook uh, ads and. Um, there's one other thing as well. It might come to me in a second. But yeah, we do believe in outsourcing. The beauty of that is that uh, you don't need to take full-time staff on. You use resources when you need them. Yes, they can be more expensive, but it's much easier to scale up and scale up, scale down very quickly. And sometimes the the best resources, um, they want to be freelancers themselves because they're very good or they run an agency. They just are um, very good. So we, we prefer to do that as, if we can. Yeah, you know, I think um, outsourcing is definitely a a great way, great I guess step towards a high step before hiring a team, right? Just being able to send out specific tasks, specific uh, responsibilities, and not have to have a full time person working on it. But then the, the I guess the potential issue is that I'm assuming most of them are going to be remote. Do you have any uh, I guess tips on how to manage a team of uh, outsourced freelancers when they are not, not necessarily in the same office as you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the two big things that we use is we use Basecamp, um, which is basically a task a task list system that everybody can log into, and that's got alerts that it sends out when you when you uh, add a task, and then it's got a comment thread. Because if you if you use email, this is one thing I learned a very long time ago: emails get lost, and the chain gets broken, and things get forgotten. But with Basecamp, you put a task there, and it's not gone until I tick it gone. So it stays there. So if I ever got to see what somebody's due to do, I don't need to search for my email. I remember they they should have done this task. It's there until they say. Can I, can I tick this off? And I'll look at it and I go, yeah, I'll tick it off and I'll, I'll tick that box and then it's gone. So Basecamp definitely and Google Docs obviously is another, another one. We can work with each other remotely and of course Skype. Skype's been very good. James Collier, the co-founder, he's actually based about a two-hour drive from here. But we, he used to come down once a week, but it was like a two-hour drive. Then it's a two-hour drive home. So actually that day would be less productive. Mm. And so now I say, well, just you just stay at home. And now we speak more often. We've got Skype set up. We do video Skype. And we um, probably sometimes Skype three, four, five, six times a day. Mm, wow, awesome. So thanks so much again for your time, Julian. So Huel.com is a website, H-U-E-L.com. Anywhere else you recommend our listeners go and check out if they want to follow along with what you're up to or what Huel's up to? 
Yeah, we're on social media, so Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Instagram. They're all uh, get your uh, is the handle. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link all that in the show notes as well, so people can check it out very easily. So you know, again, thanks for your time, Julian. Sure, thank you. Also, I want to say thank you to you because when I first started this this company, one of the things that uh, I did, I was searching around on what platform to use. So it's either WordPress, Magento, or Shopify. I found your podcast, and after listening to quite a few episodes, I realized there was a sort of community around uh, Shopify. And when you realize there's a community around something, you realize that it's going to grow and get better and better because more and more people are putting time and effort into it. So basically, your your podcast is part of the reason why I've got Shopify. And I think Shopify is part of the reason we're successful today. So I need to thank you. Oh, awesome. That, that's that's great to hear. That, that's, that's, uh, I definitely appreciate that. I can remember literally walking my dog, listening to you, listening to some of these. And th- th- each time I listen to it, like you say, there's a gem. That's the key word, I think. Each time you listen to a podcast, there's one or two gems that you can use in your business that makes a difference to your business. So I've listened to, I don't know, I don't know it's hundreds of your podcasts, but I listen to absolutely loads of them. In each time, there's one or two gems that I use in the business. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.